Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Today's Gospel reading is uh, one that we're all so familiar with that we sometimes don't quite get its radical nature. It's from Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35, and uh, it begins with Peter coming up to Jesus and asking him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? The rabbis used to say as many as three times, so Peter's already uh, beginning to grow his capacity for forgiveness. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. In other words, there's no end, no end to the forgiveness you have to exercise. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. So Jesus is going to give us a story here to help strengthen his point. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down, pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused, and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The parable that Jesus tells in this gospel lesson is quite shocking. And like so many of his parables, it's meant to be shocking. Jesus was a master communicator, and even those who cannot bring themselves to receive him as Lord or Savior will acknowledge that when reading the Gospels, they do encounter a real personality, somebody with real likes and dislikes, somebody with real relationships, somebody with real competencies. It sounds silly to say it, but Jesus would score high in competence on a personal social scale. More importantly, he would be off the charts on a scale of communication skills. He tells stories that are brief, well-crafted, pointed, and often shocking. And as everyone who's had the responsibility for speaking or writing knows, it's hard to speak or write short. Jesus speaks short and pointed and colorfully and with moral importance. So this parable from Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35, is given to us in response to Peter's question about the extent of forgiveness. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said, I say to you, not seven times, but 77 times. In the language of first century Palestinian Judaism, this meant there's no limit to the forgiveness that you should have available. You are to be exceedingly generous with forgiveness. But Jesus doesn't leave us just with a command. He goes on to tell us a story 
that is meant to elicit from us the moral strength to obey the command. Basically, he says the kingdom of God is like this. A king wants to settle his accounts with those who owe him money. And so we're then introduced to a fellow whose debt is colossal. In today's language, it would be in the millions. And we're meant to identify with this fellow who's so debt-ridden and not having the resources to repay. And since he could not repay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. But the man, again, falls on his knees, implores the master, the king, have patience with me, I'll pay you everything. And the response is, no, I'm going to sell you into slavery with your wife and children, all that you have. And then he finally falls on his knees. He's at his wit's end. And, of course, the master forgives him, forgives him the debt. Now, we're happy to hear that the master releases him, forgives the debt, because the parable, of course, illustrates the mercy of God. Indeed, the the words mercy and pity, forgiveness, are repeated several times in the parable. And that should be the end of the story, right? (laughs) The forgiveness is there. The man has been justified. Uh, He's forgiven. But the scriptures don't leave it there. Jesus doesn't leave it there. Jesus is not naive about the human heart. And the story goes on. But when that same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, basically a day's wage, he seized him, began to choke him, and said, pay what you owe. And shockingly, the servant who's forgiven millions turns brutally against this other man, not just another man, by the way, but a fellow servant, a colleague. Furthermore, the fellow servant only owes the man what's been forgiven millions. He only only owes him a day's wage. And yet, in spite of having just received this extraordinary mercy and generosity of spirit that the king afforded him, he refuses to show mercy to his fellow servant. You know, the point of the parable is God's exceeding mercy, our need for it, and our need to imitate it. And yet, I confess that most of my life I've heard this parable and listened to it, and I think that I'm not abnormal here. I've listened to it from the point of view that I'm angry, I'm indignant, I'm disgusted with this first servant. I don't identify with this quick forgetfulness of his condition of indebtedness to the king. But I think that Jesus' point, however, is that we, the listeners, his disciples, we're the ones who have been forgiven every transgression, small and great, that we've committed over the course of our lives. We're the ones who've received the overflowing grace and generosity of God, and yet we're also the ones who pick and choose among our fellows as to who we think is deserving of God's grace and who's undeserving. We're the ones who hold grudges and refuse to be generous with our time. We're the ones who are easily offended and expect people to show us the benefit of the doubt when we're not willing to give others the benefit of the doubt. We're the ones who expect people to be more patient and understanding of us than we're willing to be patient and understanding of others. I've noticed this in my marriage. I expect Sally to be far more patient and understanding of my weaknesses and lapses of judgment than I'm patient and understanding of her weaknesses and lapses of judgment. It's an embarrassing moment when you realize that, but it's there. We pick and choose those who are worthy of our compassion. 
So we hear of people in destitute circumstances, and we think, well, maybe they brought this on themselves. After all, they're uneducated. They're lazy. They're overweight. They're illiterate. They're always playing the victim. They're addicted again. They lack motivation. Where are their fathers and mothers? Don't they have any families who can help? They're probably so self-absorbed they can't even maintain normal friendships. Now, maybe you don't think such things. But I've not only thought such things, but I've actually said them when looking upon those in need of some sort. If I can't find a personal reason why this person is in dire straits, then I'm interested in finding some macro solution that might solve the problem of homelessness or addiction or poverty, something that will render me absolved from any personal responsibility for that person's circumstances. Yes, I'd rather blame someone for their circumstances or find a macro plan that will solve the social problems behind their dire circumstances, rather than carry out the simplest of the corporal acts of mercy. It's shameful, uh, but, well, what can I say? Uh, it's there. And that's why we need a God who is so exceedingly generous with his grace and forgiveness. In Romans 14, St. Paul has a discussion of the weak brother versus the strong brother, the weaker brothers are those whose faith isn't strong enough to engage in certain liberties which are allowed by grace. The strong are supposed to be those who fully get grasp God's grace and the freedom it brings from certain demands of the older Jewish law. And St. Paul says, Now receive the one who is weak in faith, but not for quarrels and opinions. Who are you who passes judgment on the domestic slave that belongs to someone else? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. For none of us lives for himself, and none dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For Christ died and became alive again for this reason, in order that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. And then he circles back around to the major point I'm trying to make. But why do you judge your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will praise God. So each one of us will give an account concerning himself. Therefore, let us no longer pass judgment on another, but rather decide this, not to place a curse for stumbling or a temptation before a brother. Now, I suspect St. Paul has his tongue halfway in his cheek when he writes about the strong and the weak. Because before God, we are all weak. Before God, we are all under judgment. And in God's sight, we all fit the words of Psalm 6. I am languishing, O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is sorely troubled. We're afflicted with the sickness unto death. We need the Lord's healing, all of us. When we realize that, it is the most liberating thing we can imagine because it puts us all in the same boat. <laughs> we are all human, sons of Adam, in need of becoming, of course, sons of the last Adam, Christ. We get to let go of our pretensions of being the strong ones. We can easily align ourselves with the weak ones who know their need of God. Because we are those who must forgive exceedingly and excessively. Because we've been forgiven exceedingly and excessively 
by our most generous and gracious God. I think the only way to do this is to remember that when God forgives us, he forgives us all the sins, all the shortcomings, all the self-justifications and excuses that we've used through our lives to, in a way, protect ourselves uh, from service to others. Um, The difference between the church and the world is that the church knows something the world doesn't know. The church knows that the judgment of God is completely enclosed in his mercy. And this is the good news. It's the good news that comes in the Te Deum when we sing it. We believe that thou will come to be our judge. We therefore pray thee, help thy servants whom thou hast redeemed with thy precious blood. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. <laughs> 